you have your Bibles, um, take those out and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I, I, Mark. <laughs> I'll say Mark, Luke, John, Matthew, all of them before it's over. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Um, if you are using one of the black uh, chair Bibles, I think it's page 837. If you're using one of these scripture journals, I highly recommend it's page eight. This is one of the um, this is one of the means by which Christ holds us fast. It's to that beautiful song that we sing and that beautiful truth and that promise of Christ is holding us fast. How is He holding us fast as we press into Him and follow Him as we press into His Word? And so, like it's because He's holding us fast that we can sit under His Word. And be held by his word. And so, uh, yeah, we give thanks to him for that promise. You guys sounded good. The choir sounded beautiful today. Thank you all. Beautiful singing. All right. Mark chapter 1. We started a couple weeks ago. We've made it all the way down um, into verse 14. Look at 14 through 20 this morning. And now... Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the word that points us to the Son, that teaches us about you, Jesus. It teaches us who you are and what you've come to do and what that means for us. And so may you, by the power of the Spirit, would you just allow us to sit under your word and to hear and to be attentive. Lord, we live in a, in a time where we, we desire to be distracted from meaningful things oftentimes. We give ourselves to so many distractions, Lord, but may we, for this brief time together, may we focus, help us to focus, help us to hear, Lord, to hear from you and to hear from your word. In your name we pray, amen. Well, this section um, this morning, I'll give you kind of the the overarching theme, and I I usually call it the main point. So here's the main point for for the message, which is the main point of the text, okay? So if, if those two things ever don't seem like they match up, let me know. But that's, that's my job, is to tell you what the text says. Um, my job's not to write the mail, but to deliver the mail, and the mail is God's word. And so here's the main point of the text, which will be the main point of the sermon. It's this, good news. I got, I got good news for you this morning. Better news than the cats pulled it off, right? Better news than the Kansas City Chiefs will get beat today. Better news than like the, the winning lottery numbers. Great news, good news. And here's the good news is that Jesus has come 
in order to inaugurate, to bring, to, to, to let it unfold the kingdom of God. And here's the beauty of it, anyone, anyone who will humble themselves, anyone who's willing can get in on this. Now you go, how? Like I'm so thankful for God's word that it's so practical to us. How? Well, here it's in this text. How do we get in on this? We repent, we believe, we follow. And then lastly, I put it in brackets, we fish. It's a little silly, but it's, it's part of it in the bottom there. How do you get in on this? And, and I gotta be honest, like as I was working through the text this week, I just kept making it um, more complicated than it needs to be. It's very simple. This text is very, very simple. It's the essence of what it means to be a Christian is found in this text. What is Christianity? Here's Christianity, that Jesus has come to do what you could not do on your own. He has come to do it. He has done a new thing in his person and in his work. It's called the gospel. It's what Jesus will give his life to, his death um, in order to acquire. His resurrection, his ascension is all pointing to this thing called the kingdom of God that is at hand. How do I get in on it? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, a Christian is someone who has repented of their sin of their idolatry, of their selves. They believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're following after Jesus and then they join Jesus on his mission. And his mission is to fish. That's what it's all about. That's what Christianity is about. Last week, we, we looked at um, two events of Jesus that were very important. Jesus' baptism and Jesus' temptation. And we said, even though, like, we said this last week, that God is doing something new in Jesus. In Jesus' life, in his, in his work, he's doing something new. But what Jesus is doing is Jesus, even though he's doing something new, he's following after a familiar pattern. Just like Adam in Genesis, just like Israel in Exodus and kind of the rest of the Bible, just like in Joshua even, Genesis, uh, Israel 2.0, that Jesus is following a similar pattern. Last week we looked at the, the baptism and we said was Jesus was baptized in water and, and the, the scripture mark records that, that the, the waters are divided. We say there's a pattern there. Just that creation in Genesis 1, the, the waters are divided. Just like in Exodus as the Israel crosses through the Red Sea, the waters are divided. Just as Israel 2.0 crossed through the Jordan. It's even in the fact of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan. The same waters. What happens as the Israelites cross over even the Jordan to get onto the other side of the promised land and take possession of it? Well, the waters are divided. And so we see this familiar pattern we, see, we saw last week that, that the spirit is hovering, he's fluttering over Jesus, just like in creation in Genesis chapter one. Then we see that he's tested by Satan, just as the first Adam was tested, just as the first Adam was, was out um, with the animals, Jesus is there, he's with the animals, he's in the wilderness, just like, just like, um, just like Israel, just like Adam. But where they failed, Jesus succeeds. Where they were disobedient, Jesus is obedient. Where they grumbled and they complained and they were stuck in unbelief, Jesus obeys and Jesus is trust. And so God is doing something new. That Jesus is the true and the better Adam, the true and better Israel. And now God is doing something um, new. And no, notice, in fact, what Mark picks up on in the timeline of events. Look with me, if you will, at um, verse number 14, where we began. 
He says, now after John was arrested, so that John is John the Baptist. We started off the first week looking at the ministry of John the Baptist. And so probably some time has elapsed between verse 13 and verse 14. Enough time for John to get under the skin of King Herod and then to be arrested. Maybe several months. I mean, Mark doesn't cover all those events, but the arrest of John the Baptist is marking a a significant event, not just a significant event in, in John's life or in Jesus's life, but a, a significant event in the storyline of the Bible as well. As we said about this, about John the Baptist on week one, John the Baptist was the messenger, but Jesus is the message. John the Baptist was the pointer, but Jesus was the point. John the Baptist is, pro- is preparing the way, but ultimately Jesus is the way. And so John the Baptist functions as kind of the last Old Testament prophet. Remember, he's Elijah-like. And now Mark is picking up and saying, that time has passed, that time is over. We put a closure to that. John the Baptist will be arrested, and later on he'll be beheaded, put to death. And now Jesus' ministry has become. John the Baptist is like, he's passed the baton on to Jesus, and Jesus has begun his public ministry. Jesus is probably about 30 years old here. Um, And now he's picking up his public ministry. And notice as he begins his public ministry, how he begins it. He begins it preaching. He's a preacher. I don't know what you think about Jesus and all of his vocations, but Jesus is first and foremost a a preacher. Stephen Lawson, a, a great preacher that I like to listen to, he says this. He said, God had one son and he made him a preacher. And that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus has come into Galilee, into this region. Notice what he's doing. He's, he's proclaiming. He's proclaiming the gospel of God, Mark says, and he's saying some things. These are the first words that Mark um, picks up on and records down from Jesus's mouth. These are in the gospel of Mark. If we just look at Mark, these are the first words right here in this quote that we could pick up that Jesus says. I mean, if you think about this as a, as a movie, everything else has been building to this moment. And now all of a sudden you have Jesus showing up and you have Jesus that's getting ready to speak. And so everybody's hush, hush, hush. What's he gonna say? And here is what he says. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus delivers a, a sermon here. It's kind of a three-part sermon. It's the same way that I try to preach. I I do this kind of multiple times, but his sermon unfolds like this, and this will kind of be the flow for the rest of my sermon, is what we see is Jesus makes a declaration, followed by some application, followed by an illustration. So there's a declaration that he makes, and I just read that declaration to you. And then there's application, which means, what does this mean for us? How does this apply? How did it apply to those first listeners? And how does it apply to us? The same application will be made. And then finally, we saw Jesus as he goes and he approaches four disciples and calls them to follow. What's happening there? Well, it's an illustration of the declaration and the application coming together. So first, it's a declaration. And notice the declaration is, Mark says, it's God's gospel. That's what he proclaims. It's good news. That's what gospel means. Jesus isn't giving advice here. He is proclaiming something. He is proclaiming, what is he proclaiming? Well, notice what he's proclaiming, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Notice as Mark describes this good news, he says that it's, 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 it's the gospel of God. Now, 
Um, Paul will say the same thing in Romans chapter one. He calls the gospel the good news of God. It belongs to God. That's what he says. And I think Martin Lloyd-Jones preached like seven sermons on that one phrase, the gospel of God. So I will try to do it in seven minutes rather than seven 50-minute sermons. But you get the point that God is doing something here. It's God's gospel, God's good news. It is from God. It belongs to God. It pertains to God. It's the good news. What's the good news? That God is up to something, that God is doing something. It's the good news of what God has done, not what man must do. This is God at work, not calling us to our own efforts, but it's, it's even in, in that simple phrase of the gospel of God, it's a reminder that God is at work. God is doing something. I mean, even as we, as we think about uh, C.S. Lewis captures it very well, the anticipation and the excitement and, and just five words in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or for those of you that saw the movies, the, the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis captures it whenever Mr. Beaver says, Aslan, Aslan is on the move. That's what Mark is saying. That's what Jesus is doing is, is Aslan, like in C.S. Lewis's story, referring back to, referring to God, to Jesus. Jesus is on the move. God is doing something. What is he doing? Well, he's inaugurating his kingdom. That is his message. Very simple message. He says here, the kingdom of God is at hand. What does it mean that it's, within, that it's at hand? Well, it's within our reach. It's within our, within our grasp. The kingdom of God, he's saying, is being ushered in. Now, let's just be honest. As, as good Americans, we don't know much about kingdoms. I mean, that's what our forefathers were doing 200 plus years ago when they founded this nation as they were running from a corrupt kingdom. And so we were like, you know what? That was a bad idea. So we just won't have kingdoms anymore. And so now we have a democracy, which I think is wonderful. But nevertheless, we don't know a lot about kingdoms And sometimes our view and our understanding of kingdom is diminished. And so we have to go to stories like the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings or other great stories that are out there in order to understand the concept of kingdom. But this much we know, every kingdom must have a king. And that's what he means by Jesus is coming, is the king has arrived. The king is here. Just like in the Lord of the Rings, the king returns, right? The final, the final movie, the final part, the final chapter, all pointing up to the king is returning. And that is what John the Baptist was saying. Remember, that was the message of John the Baptist in Mark chapter one was prepare the way. Get ready, level, make level, make straight, make paths, fill in all the potholes, make a road. Why? Because the king is coming and now Jesus is saying the time is fulfilled. That time is fulfilled. The way has been prepared and now Jesus is is coming. Jesus is saying, you've been looking forward to this day. There's been prophecies in the past and now it has come in your very presence, the promised rule of the Messiah. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is within its reach. It has come. The kingdom of God, put this up on the screen. The kingdom of God refers to, what does it refer to? It refers to this. It refers to God's reign and God's rule. The kingdom of God is where the king, where, his, uh, where the king is. It is where his reign and his rule are recognized. It is where the king is acknowledged. It is where the king's ways are obeyed. It is where his subjects are saved and safe. It is where his enemies are vanquished. 
That's what it means by the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to hold on to that because we're going to need that as we move forward in the gospel of Mark. Like what we're going to see next week is we're going to see Jesus preaching and healing and doing miracles, and we're going to see him encountering a demon, and Jesus is going to exercise his authority. What's happening in, this, in that story? This is a preview of next week. What's happening in that preview, um, what's happening in that story is, is, is exactly what he's saying here. It's a demonstration that his kingdom has come. Jesus is exercising authority. Why is he exercising authority? Because he is the king and because he has power, because he has authority over all of these things. In fact, that right there, that, that paragraph will set us up for the next couple of chapters of the book of Mark. This is the declaration. And then what we'll see is the demonstration of that very thing as we move forward in the book of Mark. Mark covers more miracles than any other gospel accounts. Why? Because his focus is that Jesus is the king. And as king, Jesus has power and Jesus has authority and Jesus has might. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is king and his kingdom has come. And Jesus has brought health and healing. And Jesus has brought, uh, um, as he says here, his, in, his enemies are vanquished. The kingdom of God has invaded this fallen world and God's people are now experiencing the blessing of the king and his kingdom. Just like, as I said, a familiar pattern, the garden of Eden, Genesis chapter one and chapter two has, has returned to a degree. People are experiencing the blessings of the king and the kingdom. The promises that we look to in the forward in the future, the promises of heaven, they're breaking in. I mean, think about the, the promises of heaven that are given in the Bible. No more tears, no more suffering, no one is hungry, security, abundance, no more sin, no more evil, no more wickedness. All is holy, God dwelling with his people. And what we have here with Jesus' coming and Jesus' ministry is we have a, a foretaste of that. These people are experiencing that to a degree, just as you and I in the age of the church, we are experiencing that to a degree. It's, it's like um, if you go to a restaurant and you order an appetizer, right? Maybe you go to a, a nice restaurant, a, a fancy restaurant, you order a, a big steak, right? Prime rib or filet mignon, something good, something, nothing well done, something that's medium rare, you know, we're not savages here. We've got some sense, so that's how we'll order it. And oftentimes you go to the right restaurant, what they'll bring you is they'll bring you a, a, an appetizer. Sometimes it's a dinner salad. I'm not talking about something that's, that's chinchy. I'm not talking about just some lettuce. I'm talking about something that's good. Like, have you ever been to Rafferty's? Oh, my. You're talking about a good salad, right? They put that hot bacon, it's bacon grease made into a salad dressing. Stop right there. Sugar, vinegar, and bacon grease. Where could you go wrong? And onions, have you been? And they got these croissants and they put this, you're getting hungry, aren't you? They put this glaze over it. And what happens when you eat that and lick the bowl, right? It does two things. It, it one, it, it satisfies you to a degree, right? But it also prepares you for the meal that is to come. It satiates and knocks back a little bit of the hunger. It's a, it's a foretaste, an appetizer of what is to come, the steak that is to come. And, that's what these people are experiencing in the kingdom of God. They're experiencing a wonderful, beautiful dinner salad for something that is to come. And you and I, we, spiritually speaking, we are experiencing in the day of the church, in the age of the church, in salvation and communion with God and all of his promises. We're experiencing a dinner salad that makes us hungry and points us forward to the meal that is to come that will be the fullness of the kingdom of God 
in heaven. That's what we're having here. And that's what they're experiencing. Now, how do you experience the kingdom of God? How do you get in on this? How do you know that you're a part of that kingdom? Right? Like, like for you, if I was to ask you, how do you know you're part of the kingdom of the United States? Well, you would produce some paperwork, right? You produce a, possibly a, a driver's license, right? A birth certificate. You would produce a, a passport, some kind of paperwork. And say, so what's your paperwork that validates your participation? Well, listen, listen, here's how you get in on this. It's in Jesus' words right here. It's really simple. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And now how do you get in on this? Look, you repent and you believe in the gospel. That's how you make, that's how you get in. That's, that's how you're immunized. Isn't that what they call it? Like when you become a process of becoming a, a citizen. That's how you come into the citizenship of heaven. You repent and you believe in the gospel. And this is the application part. This is the, the do. This is, how does this refer to us? What does this inform us to do? How do we respond to the kingdom of God being at hand? Well, here's how our response. We repent and we believe in the gospel. We repent and we believe in the gospel. Those are two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. To repent means to turn from something and to believe in means to turn towards something. It's to do a 180 in life. Repentance is turning from our little kingdoms and the kingdom of this world. It's turning from our sin, from ourself, turning from our idolatry and turning toward belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's turning toward the kingdom of God. It's turning towards Jesus as king. It's turning away from our pride and turning towards humility to, to admit that we're not the king, but he is the king. In fact, as I thought about this, I was thinking about there was a, years ago, there was a, a gospel track that was kind of handed out. And so like, you know, a little slip of paper, it would, it would help us to help people to share the gospel. And sometimes people would, would leave them around and you'd find them like little, like little gospel bombs that would go off and you'd grab one. And years ago, a guy by the name of Bill Bright wrote a great little gospel track. I remember seeing it as a young Christian. Bill Bright's the one who went on to lead or, or led um, Campus Crusades for Christ. It's called Crew it's a college ministry even now. And in his um, track, it, it, it looked like this. He first identified what was the natural man. And now I'm a visual learner. Maybe this is why I liked it so much. It's because this would be the illustration that he drove. And he said, the big circle right there, that represents all of your life. The totality of your life is being demonstrated there by this circle. And in the middle of the circle, there is a chair. And he called that chair, it's a throne. And what that throne represents, it's, um, it represents the control center of your life. That's the, the iOS of your life. It's the control center of your life. And he says the thrones is the intersection of one's intellect, emotions, and will. And the S on the throne represents self. That we all are born as natural people with, with self on the throne. You know this, like parents in the room, you, you know this because that's, that's what that little baby does, right? It didn't care about you in your sleep. All it cares about is feed me, feed me now. So I'm just going to scream, right? That's what I'm going to do. Like those of you that are, you know, hoping to have children someday, I'm preparing you for that. One of the hardest things of having kids, at least that stage, is the sleep depravity that comes alongside of it because these little selfish children, gifts from the Lord, 
will keep you up all night. And so self, self is what's sitting on the, on the throne of your life. But the reality is we usually don't graduate past that unless God does a work. We have little idioms that we talk about. We say things like, I did it my way. We talk about things like, follow your heart. You gotta look out what's best for you. Nobody else will take care of you. What are we saying when we say things like that? Well, we're saying this very reality that self is on the throne. Your ego is on the throne. You are driving your life. You are dictating your life. The the little dots all around, well, those are your interests in life, Bill Bright would say. He said, those are what the, the dots are. They're the interests of one's life and they're all being directed by self. You are at the center of your worldview in this. And notice where the cross of Christ is. Notice where the gospel is. Notice where Jesus is. He's outside of your life. And the reality of living like like this oftentimes leads to frustration and discord because you're out of harmony with the way that God has made you. You're outside of the kingdom. And what repentance is, what repentance and belief is, it's dethroning self and putting Christ on the throne. That what the saved person is, is the saved person is the person who is coming under the reign of Christ. See, we sang the opening song, the call to worship was a song that we sang. We said, God, you are sovereign over us. And that is a universal truth. God is sovereign over everything. You go, what does sovereign mean? Well, sovereign, it's, it's got what it means in the, in the word sovereign. Because within the word sovereign is the name, the, the word reign. And it's the reality that God reigns over everybody. And who are Christians? We are people who recognize that God reigns over everything and we humbly bow and submit to his, to his rule and to his reign and experience his blessing. That's what it means to be saved. It's to come under that reign and that rule of Christ. It's what this illustration has here. Our lives are made up now where we are, we have humbled ourselves beneath the throne of Christ in his sovereignty and in his plan and in his reign and in his rule. And, and notice though that our interests though, our interests change because now Jesus is dictating all of our interests. Does that mean we can't be interested in football? No, I think Jesus is interested in football except for the Chiefs. They're red for a reason. Satan. Maybe too far. But no, it's, it's not saying that. This isn't legalism or asceticism where we renounce all pleasures in life, but pleasures are not on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus teaches us and directs us and instructs us in how we are to live and to govern our lives. And, and again, how we can enjoy pleasures to his glory. It's the truth of that. Listen, many of us, what we want is we want the blessings of the king and the kingdom without the reign and the rule of the king and the kingdom. And those cannot be had. If you want the blessings of the king and the kingdom, then you have to submit yourself before the, the reign of the king and the kingdom. It's a call to believe in the gospel, not just to believe the gospel, but to believe in it, to experience it, to experience his reign, experience his rule coming into your life. 
not just mental assent of the existence of God or in the, the past person of Christ, but believing in the good news of his kingdom and his reign and his rule over your life. We cannot say that we believe in the gospel and then continue to invest our time and our energy in our little kingdoms rather than in his kingdom. That's important. So we'll get to the final piece. We can't spend our time and our energy living out of our kingdoms, but we are here for his kingdom and for his glory. In fact, we, that's what follows next is we have a, an illustration of what repentance looks like. What does it mean to, to repent, to turn from and to turn toward? Well, we have that happening in these first calling of these first four disciples. Look at what God is doing here. Jesus is gonna call four. He calls here, we see four disciples, but he'll call a total of, of how many? 12. Why 12? Remember to say Jesus is doing something new, but he's following a familiar pattern. Remember, there were 12 tribes of Israel. Now there's 12 disciples, 11 of which will, be, um, will, will stand the test. One will not, and then he'll be replaced because there's 12 apostles to which the church will be built upon. Jesus is just following that. And notice here we have um, irony. At least maybe you might not notice the irony in this passage, but Mark actually loves irony. He loves to, to point out throughout his gospel narrative, I'll, I'll bring it out probably time and time again, this is, this is irony. Now, sometimes that irony is lost on us because we're, we've never been Jewish fishermen. Some of you pretend to be fishermen like myself. Some of you are real fishermen, but nevertheless, you've never been Jewish fishermen. And so some of this is a little bit lost on us. But what Jesus is doing here is um, it's important and it's ironic because look, disciples sought out rabbis. Rabbis never sought out disciples. Let's look at this text with us and, and, and we'll kind of make some, some mental notes here. He says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus, that's Jesus, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, and Simon is Peter. That's the same person, Simon, Peter. Later on, he'll be just called Peter. And remember what I said, Peter was, Mark serves as Peter's interpreter. So, so this is kind of point of view. This is Mark's kind of story. This, I mean, I'm sorry, this is Peter's story here even. And we go, how did he get included in this story? Well, we see he's actually maybe the first one Jesus calls. The first one he says, come and follow me is Simon. He says he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, and they're casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make, and, and, and I will make you become fishers of men. Next slide. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they followed him. And so this is, um, as I said, this is an illustration here. First of all, let me finish this point. This is irony here, that a rabbi is calling disciples to follow him. But again, remember what we said, it's God's gospel. That's even, this is even a, an illustration of that, that Jesus is taking the initiative here. He's gathering for himself disciples who will follow him, that he's gonna call them on his mission and he's gonna send these very folks out. And so this is, this is ironic, but notice also here what he's doing also is he's illustrating what, what repentance and belief is, looks like. 
Now listen, there's nothing sinful about being a fisherman. That isn't the point. The point of what's happening here is to serve as an object lesson of what repentance and belief looks like. The result of it, and it is, is that they follow Jesus. That's the result. They're, they're turning from something and turning towards something. They're turning from their, their, their past vocation, and they're turning and they're following Jesus. But Jesus just isn't saving sinners, but he's creating followers, people who will follow him in life. They will join him on mission. I want you to notice just a couple of things. Number one, notice this, that following Jesus requires faith. I mean, how much at this point did these four men know about Jesus? Let me answer that, not much. They probably didn't know much. I mean, Jesus is just beginning his ministry. Now, certainly maybe some, some thoughts have come out, some stories have been told about John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. Some other things may have occurred. There's a little bit of rumors maybe about his birth, but these men don't know a lot about Jesus. And yet what Jesus does is Jesus shows up and he calls them to follow him. And notice what they do immediately. They lay down their nets and they, they follow him. I mean, their following is an exercise of faith. And that's important for us to highlight. I mean, how many of you out there are, are researchers? Before you make a purchase, you research things. You check reviews. You, you, know, you think about it for a period of time. You research it. Now, that, there's nothing wrong with that. You should do that. There's wisdom in that. But notice they're not researching anything. They're exercising faith here. Jesus says, drop your nets, follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. And they say, okay, we're gonna follow you. Now, again, we see something that is compelling and powerful about Jesus's call, but notice also how Jesus is working out that call in these men's lives. It comes, it comes with faith. They exercise faith that led them to follow. But then as they follow, they learn more and more about Jesus. Hence, even the gospel of Mark coming from Peter. He's writing this out. But the reality is Jesus won't be truly known and experienced apart from following him. You gotta follow him. Follow him where he's going. Submit to him. Let him lead you in life. That's what it means to be a Christian. What it means is to be a follower. And following requires faith. Next note, following requires a A cost. Sometimes I, I just picture these fishermen as kind of um, blue-collar guys, and th there is a degree of that that's true. I mean, there is that irony here as well of what um, normal rabbis would have done is they would have gone to, to a school and they would have picked the, the brightest and the best to be their disciples. They would have said, hey, listen, I'm a rabbi. I want you to follow me. I want you to watch what I do, and then I want you to do what I do. I want you to listen to my teaching, which was called a yoke. I want you to listen to my yoke, my teaching that I'm teaching from the Old Testament. Then I want you to carry this out. And they would have chosen the brightest and the best in, in school. And Jesus is taken a different, an ironic route. He's choosing folks that have dropped out from school. He's choosing folks that have gone back to their family businesses. He's choosing, if you will, blue collar folks. Now, again, as I read this, I just thought, well, maybe they just had like Joe Jobs. Like, I don't know, maybe when you first were getting started in, in life as a, as a young man or young woman, you just took any job that you could take, right? You're just like, hey, I just want to get my foot in the door. I'm going to take this job. And then you kind of moved up the, the ladder, right? And so it was easy to leave like a Joe job for another job, right? I, I've done construction work. I mean, dad had a construction company and 
Believe me, I was looking for any opportunity, especially when we were working in the sewers to get out of the sewers construction and move into another job. But listen, these men aren't just doing Joe jobs here. Like I always kind of saw it as that. But then as I looked at this text even deeper, a couple things that I noticed here is, is notice first of all who they're with, they're with their fathers. But then even notice here when it comes down to, to James and to John, it says immediately he called them, verse number 20, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. I mean, they're leaving a, a family enterprise here. They're leaving a business. I mean, they had hired servants. They're leaving behind security. And there's a cost involved. And that'll be a theme to Jesus' teaching. It'll be a theme to, to count the cost. There has to be a willingness to give up, to follow Jesus. You have to be able to, to leave. Not just to leave sinful things, but sometimes to leave meaningful things. There's a risk in following Jesus. There's a cost in following Jesus. Security is found in the boat, but life is found in following Jesus. And that's what they do. They follow Jesus. Next, I want you to notice that they're following Jesus requires a level of immediacy. Say so this was Mark's favorite word throughout his gospel. I think he's going to use it 35 times. And notice here, um, if you're using one of these scripture journals, he's used it one, two, three, four times on the, on the second page. On the second page, we're not even out of, the, out of the first chapter. And four times, Mark has said, use this favorite word, immediately. Verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee. Immediately he left. Immediately he called. And following Jesus requires immediacy. For some of you that still have stealth on the, on the throne, that even today, Jesus is calling you to dethrone self and to put Christ on the throne. And maybe you're waiting. Maybe you're pausing. Maybe you're contemplating. Maybe you're still doing the research. Maybe you're still trying to think about that. In fact, for some of you, maybe you would say, you know what? Christ isn't outside of my life. Christ is in my life. In fact, as uh, Bill Bright had an illustration, there was a third illustration that he included here. And it's this illustration here. Again, this big circle is, is, is all of your life and you have the throne, but notice the self is still on the throne, but Christ isn't outside of your life. You just try to, to work him in as one of the interests or one of the things in your life. Like you still are in charge. You still are living life for you. You're still following after yourself, but then you've got knowledge of Jesus or some some fake towards, uh, some head fake towards repentance or some thing in there where you think about Jesus and he's, and he's in there. He's still part of what you would say is, is your life. For some of you, this is you. You think you have one foot in God's kingdom and one foot in your own kingdom, but, but that is just not true. Sin is easy for this guy or this woman. Sin is fun. You're, and, and the thought of living under Christ's rule is restrictive. And I would just say, what are you waiting on? There's immediacy here. Following Jesus will always require faith. Following Jesus will always be costly, but following Jesus is always worth it. It's always worth it. It's always worth it. And because it's always worth it, it also, it means we're always repenting. We always are dethroning our lives of self and letting Christ be on the throne and there's immediacy in that. As Jesus is calling these disciples, he's calling us even today by the power of his word to come and to follow him. 
Following him, I said, requires faith. Following him requires a cost. Following him requires immediacy. But also, look, following Jesus requires us joining him in what he is doing. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means that we reorient our lives around him and what he is doing and what he cares about, about his mission. And what is that? His mission is people. Notice even in the irony of what he's calling these men to, he's calling them to two things, to follow him and to become something. What are they to become? They're to become fishers of men. Stop fishing for fish, like as an illustration there. Quit fishing for fish. You're casting these nets, catching fish. Come follow me and what I'm gonna make you is I'm gonna make you a fisher of men. Why, why a fisher of men? Because that's what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come, as even Pastor Bo has already said in his prayer, Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. And in fact, what Mark will do is Mark will end. Again, I, we talk about Mark and sandwiches. And I said, they're all throughout this book of, you know, just like in a sandwich, you got bread and bread, and then you got the meat in the middle. In the same way, he makes, he makes statements. And they're followed by a, a, a similar statement made again. And then in the middle is the illustration and the living of, of that out. And there's one even here is Jesus comes preaching and proclaiming the gospel. And then he calls these men. He says, I'm gonna make you fishers of men. And then the gospel of Mark will end in Mark 16 with Jesus sending these men out, these same four and a few others. And he will tell them in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. In other words, get your nets out and catch some fish. I'm sending you fishing. And that's the challenge, I think, for us. It's a challenge for us here at the Point Community Church. We'll go back from illustration back into applications. I thought about this. It was a challenge for me. Some of us are a little introverted, are we not? 2020 caused a lot of people fatigue. We're busy and we're distracted and we forget Jesus's mission. And what is Jesus doing? He's come to seek and to save that which is lost. How is he doing that? by sending his disciples. Follow me, join me on mission. What is his mission? We say it every week. It is to make and to mature and to multiply disciples, right? It's, it's, it's to care about what Jesus cares about. And what does Jesus care about? His glory being made known in people. And there's the problem, is it not? Glory's not a problem, Jesus not a problem, but what's the problem there? People. People's the problem. That's hard. He's called us to hard things. He's called us to follow him and to join him in what he is doing, which is proclaiming his gospel, spreading out his glory. How do we do that? We do that as we proclaim the gospel. We do that in the, and I just don't want us to forget this, the power of invitation and the power of our hospitality and the power of our evangelism and the power of sharing your story. There's this uh, saying that gets spread out there. It's, it's attributed to, uh, to St. Francis of Assisi, I believe. No, no, no proof whether he said it or not. Maybe you've heard it. It says, preach the gospel always, use words if necessary. Have you heard it? And there's some truth in that, that we need to live lives that are congruent with the declarations of the gospel. Yes, don't be a hypocrite. Yes, preach and live out what you're preaching. 
Be genuine Christian. Be genuinely converted. Love Jesus. You're never going to be perfect, but be genuine in that. But listen, what St. Francis, possibly St. Francis of Assisi said, isn't what Jesus did. It's not what Jesus has called us to do. Jesus came proclaiming and saying and telling the good news, and may we do likewise. And when Jesus is on the throne, our interests match his interests. And what is Jesus interested in? His glory being made known in people's, in their souls. Seeing people saved, calling people. And he calls you and me to follow him and to fish for men. Let's get some nets out. Let's pray. Father, as we come to a time of reflection and a time of honesty before you, possibly a time of confession where we get to practice this repentance. We get to maybe repent of building out our own little kingdoms, our own little families, our own little worlds to the neglect of the world around us. Like we get to really think about that. We get to think, is, is one of the interests of my life others? Am I thinking about that? Am I living my life following you, following after you, Jesus, and living to make you known? Am I invested in the lives of others? Am I sharing the gospel with them? Am I proclaiming you, speaking about you, living for you? Is me following, being evidenced in the life that I live? Like we get to think about those things in this time and in the places where we're not, we get to repent and we get to believe in the goodness of the gospel. We get to turn from those Ways that are oftentimes, as we said, self is on the throne and the way it usually gets flushed out in our lives, fleshed out in our lives is through selfishness, self-glory. Lord, as we come to a time, we remember, Jesus, that you were not about self-glory. You're about glorifying the Father. You were about spreading his glory and your glory because you are king. As we think about that, as we come, Lord, we remember, we remember the gospel. We remember that there were faithful people that proclaimed the gospel to us, and we can give you thanks for that, Lord. We can thank you for their lives and their proclamation. Maybe parents, maybe a Sunday school teacher, somebody, we give thanks to you for that, Lord. We can say, Lord, use us in the same way. Use us in the lives of others. And most of all, what we can come is we can come and thank this humble king who had every right to his throne, but he did not think that it was something to be grasped. But he took on, this, he took on hum, humanity. He humbled himself. He became a servant. He humbled himself all the way down, became obedient, even to the point of death, as Paul says in Philippians chapter two. And we remember that even today. That he is a servant king. He did not come to be served, but he come to serve. And he served us so well by laying down his life for us that we can join his kingdom. It's in your name we pray, amen.